Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, May 7th, we're studying Jude, verses 1 to 16. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, he writes to encourage Christians to contend for the faith while also speaking words of judgment against false teachers who seek to deceive faithful Christians. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Andy Wright. Pastor Wright serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa. Pastor Wright, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to be back with you. As we get started this morning, got a new book in front of us, Jude. It's only one chapter long, but there's a lot packed in, and we've got 16 verses today. Let's start with just a few of those basics when you introduce a book. It's helpful to know things like author, date, recipients, themes, things like that. Help, help us out with some of that, Pastor Wright. Who is this Jude whose name we get in the first verse? Absolutely. Yeah, Jude um, is one of those names that it's it's a pretty common name. Sometimes you'll see it as Judas or even Judah, you know, but Judas not in Judas Iscariot terms, but that name was a, a common biblical name. And um, Jude, we see uh, from what we can tell from the text and kind of some other things as well, that he appears to be the half-brother of Jesus, um, as we'll get, as we'll see in here, that when he talks about Jesus Christ, but also the brother of James, here. So that's who um, J- Jude was. Now, there there has been some dispute of that over the years. Martin Luther actually was not real sure that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, but mm-hmm. but more often than not, um, that is what is held, is that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. And I think that's a pretty fair assessment that that's who this is. And we see him writing to um, a lot of Christians in the Palestine area. And there's different uh, reasons why this. And one thing kind of that I I would commend to our listeners reading, if you have access to it, or maybe your pastor does, um, you can talk to him about it. And if he can look it up as well, is there the Concordia commentary on second Peter and Jude is, is fantastic. It's by Dr. Curtis Giese. He's a professor down at Concordia in Austin. And he um, wrote this commentary and he has a lot of really thorough uh, things about showing why we think that this was in Palestine where he's writing, why uh, the, the date, kind of the dating, how we kind of figure out all these things. So we're looking at Jude wrote this epistle, this letter, probably somewhere between 60 and 64 AD. And there's a, a close relationship between Jude and Second Peter. And, and I know, Pastor Apple, you talked about how you had just been going through a, a Bible study on Second Peter. And um there's been a debate over the years, which came first, Second Peter or Jude, because there's a, a lot of parallels with some of these things and some of their verses. But typically, Jude is seen as being prior to Second Peter. And the, the issues that he's contending with, I think you summarized it well at the beginning, to contend for the faith over and above these false teachers and teachings that had crept into the church and he'll talk about what exactly those false teachings are, but we we see primarily this this spirit of lawlessness, this libertinism that that abuses the gospel of Christ and mocks it by both in word and in action. And so um, there's this great urging for 
for us to contend, contend for the faith and the faithfulness of, of what has been given to us, handed down through the ages in God's word. All right. So that's that's a helpful introduction. We're talking about Jude, likely a half-brother of Jesus, maybe a different Jude, but that seems to be a, a, a thought that's very prevalent throughout the history of the church. Mid to late 60s AD, perhaps written before Second Peter to churches in Palestine, talking about contending for the faith over and against the false teaching that's happening. Let's jump right in. Again, Jude's only one chapter long. We're only looking at 16 verses today, but there's so much here. So let's, let's jump in to the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that these ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. That's our text for today, Jude 1 to 16. So, Pastor Wright, let's dig into that opening couple of verses there of this epistle. Jude identifies himself first as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. We've already talked a little bit about this. What is there in this identification? There's, a, I think, a lot in there, you know, that with as we talked about with being James, but notice how he doesn't try to even just say that he's a half brother here, but he's a servant of Jesus Christ. So even being a half brother of Jesus, 
he his appeal is that he is a servant or literally a slave even of, of Jesus. And a lot of what Jude uses in his the language that he uh, brings into his epistle is very Septuagint language. So Old Testament and Greek kind of language. So that word servant of God or, or servant of Christ is often used even of like David, Abraham in, in the Greek Old Testament when we see those terms used. And in some ways, there's even kind of a, a, a certain office aspect to this here in the early church. So he's not called an apostle like the the 12 were, or even Paul, or um, James is referred to kind of a, you know as an apostle as well, but here he's referred to a servant in this sense. So, but this positive sense of the term of being, placing himself under Christ, under the one who has redeemed him, even his own, his own half-brother. And um, it's just beautiful. I, I love the the book of James, or excuse me, book of Jude here. I was looking at James on my text here. The book of Jude is just, there's so many things that can kind of derail us to get confused about or kind of lose sight of things, but it's so comforting. And it's so absolutely wonderfully kind of beautiful here in these opening verses. You know, you, you re- hearing you read that, right? To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. You know, that language of being called, it's a passive word here in Greek, that it's the work of God. God is the one who has called us out of the darkness. God is the one who has made us his own. And beloved and kept are related to that then too. Beloved, that is loved by the Father, kept. And you can translate this in kind of two different ways, kept for Jesus or even kept in Jesus Christ. So, just notice that the grace of God, even in that those opening words that he he preaches to these people here, you know, call, beloved, kept, all of that defines who we are. And then he prays for them. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Just wonderful way to start off the letter of Jude. And just a couple of, of thoughts coming out of Second Peter very recently. You can you can see some of how the language does overlap. If, for example, the the word there in verse two, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That was Peter's way of speaking as well, that these things would be multiplied to you. So you can you can already sure. start to see some of the overlap between these epistles and, and why they're sometimes grouped together as as we will continue to see. I think a, another one that we begin to see is in the next verse where Jude says, although I was very eager. Well, first he calls him beloved. I shouldn't skip over that. Peter loved to use that word too, beloved. I mean, that's that's such a huge word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we even see that kind of in, in, you know, that's a very Johannine term as well, you know, that this idea of being beloved or loved by God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then the other point that I was, I mean, before I noticed that one too, the, this matter sure. of common salvation that Jude writes about, Peter in his second epistle talked very similar. He, you know, he was writing to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, that, that this salvation that's given is common among, among the servants of Christ, among the apostles and, and among all Christians. So back to Jude, take us into what he's saying here in the first two verses of, of the body of his, well, I don't know. I, I should have, I guess I should ask you for a, a structure. I'm not sure that we're in quote the body just yet. Verses three and four, that's where I want to look. Yeah. Three and four kind of make up kind of what is the, the right after the salutation kind of, a, and then kind of getting into this address to them. And then the body proper, typically we'd, we'd see that kind of starting in verse five. So here, and then in these opening verses though he he's giving them this address and that common salvation or 
which he refers to too. It also thinks of, you know, with Second Peter and Titus 1.4, he talks about a common faith. And you think about that for a minute too. It, it's a comforting thing, you know, the communion of saints that we think about these things, you know, in parts of the world where they're being persecuted to know that that as we pray for them, even though we might not be facing those same things, it's that same faith that we share, or, you know, it's the same Lord who is the Lord of the church. And for these people that Jude is addressing here in, um, in Palestine that are facing these pretty nasty teachers, to kind of draw them outside of this and to look at the big picture of what it means to be the church of God and in that full sense of the word, that it's that they are the church there, but also it's bigger than this. The, the Christian faith is something that that he will talk about then kind of in this objective sense. We'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, that this common salvation. And then that's why then he then goes, I found it necessary to write appealing to you then to contend for the faith. Mm-hmm. And this contending for the faith, he'll get to then in Jude 20 to 23, kind of what this all entails. But the faith once for all delivered to the saints. When we talk about faith, there are two ways that we often will talk about it. We talk about um, like the Christian faith in an objective content or doctrine sense, kind of the Christian faith, pure doctrine. In theology, we call that um, the fides quae creditor, the faith which is believed. So um, as opposed to the faith which uh, Christ is believed, the fides qua creditor, you know, like I believe my faith in Christ as opposed to the faith, the Christian faith. So he's using this objective sense here, kind of, you know, drawing them out to that that understanding, and then that this has been handed down to them. It's a, a term of the scriptures, we'll use this often, or even St. Paul will use this in 1 Corinthians, you know, I receive from the Lord what I also give to you, when he addresses their abuses about the Lord's Supper, right? He gives them back, listen, I'm handing this over, this has been delivered to you, and here he uses another term for them, the saints, delivered to the saints, so they're connected even into then the history of the church, this delivering, but they're brought into that as well. And the reason then he gives us then that there's necessary for them to contend for this faith is this certain people have crept in unnoticed. Long ago were desti- designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So these intruders are ones who he said have crept in unnoticed sometimes we'll use the word luther will talk about clandestine preachers at times and this was a an issue that plagued the early church often and we even think about in the old testament these false prophets who would arise that you know jeremiah talks about you know god says you know you spoke but i did not send you right or the didache the an early christian document in chapters 11 and 12 talks about, you know, how to regard somebody who kind of comes into your midst, or Jesus in John 10, you know, about the higher hirelings as opposed to the good shepherd who lays down his life for the, the sheep. So these guys have crept in here, and they are trying to um, put themselves forward as preachers or, you know, uh, ones who are in leadership positions in their, in the church here. And he's Say, and he, but he's kind of pointing to them to the fact as well that long ago, it was written about them for judgment. God knew these intruders were going to come. That word designated there, it, we could also kind of say that it was written long ago about them, that 
that God knew. It's not that he caused it to happen, yeah. but he knew this was going to happen. He doesn't tell us the reference um, exactly where this was, but he describes them as ungodly men who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And that's kind of a key thing to kind of start forming our understanding of what was the content of their false teaching. Um, as a, you know, at, kind of using our, our Lutheran categories, we will often talk about those who um, will abuse God's grace in ways that they live lives of lawlessness and or libertinism, or sometimes they'll, we talk about the, the antinomian controversies that have plagued the church where people have seen the law of God as not being relevant for the lives of the Christians, that it doesn't guide and direct us. Luther um, references Jude 4 in his 1535 commentary on Galatians 5.13, and he kind of gives that that warning against, you know, this understanding of, um, he kind of just kind of paraphrased Luther a little bit. He talks about that this evil is very widespread, and it's worst of all evils that Satan arouses against the teaching of faith, that in many people he soon transforms the freedom for which Christ has set us free into an opportunity for the flesh. So it's, or you, we think about Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, right? All of those things. And what they do then is they end up denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a pretty serious claim. But it, what it does is by their actions, by their words, they, they create a false Christ. They create a false, a false word that is being preached in their midst. So that's kind of some heavy stuff that he lays here before us in these, these verses. Now, he, he really packs a lot into just a few verses, which I, I suppose if you're only going to write, if you're going to write an epistle that's only 25 verses long, you've got to do that. I, again, I mean, I'm noticing some similarities here between what we've been talking about in Second Peter, particularly, I mean, that denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, Peter used very similar language in chapter two when he was talking about the false teachers there, this matter of antinomianism has come up in second Peter as well. It seems like a very similar sort of false theology just from the, the way you were, you're talking there, pastor, right? I got the sense in second Peter that he seemed to be addressing teachers that were arising from within the congregations to whom he's writing. Jude sounds like maybe he's talking more about preachers that are coming in from elsewhere and, and maybe some more of an outside attack. Is that, does that seem to be the case? I think so. I think he does. Now, later he'll talk about how they're they're in their midst um, when he talks about kind of they're their eating with them and kind of, you know, doing things in there. But I think that verse four really kind of gives us this this notion of these certain people, kind of the Greek word that these men, these guys have crept into your midst, you know, unnoticed. Um, it's like here they are. And rather and they just kind of somehow they took a, a hold and. And their teachings are then the the leaven what it is. So then in verse five, you, again, we're going to begin more of the body proper of Jude. It sounds like verses three and four almost provide a summary of why he's writing, what he's going to address. And then he's going to really start to address those things in verses five and following. And he starts by, by bringing up several Old Testament examples of judgment. So the first one, well, maybe before we dig into each individual, is there uh, a logic to the way Jude arranges these examples that he brings up? Yeah, that's a good question because, um, like, you know, referring back to Second Peter, he does more of a chronological order. If you think like Second Peter 2, 4 to 8, for instance, 
whereas he doesn't necessarily have that same order. But what he does is he does kind of get us to the point of kind of just showing the 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 nature of how this affects the view of Christ and how this really gets to them. But that it's not as kind of neat as what Second Peter does here, and as or what Second Peter did in his letter as what you know Jude does here. Right. So in in Second Peter two. If, if I recall correctly, he mentioned the angels, then he mentioned Noah and the flood, and then he mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. Here, right. Jude is going to bring up one that Peter didn't bring up, which is the Exodus, and that's the first one, then the angels, and then Sodom and Gomorrah in that order. So let's let's take them one by one. His first example is what, G- and this is significant, what Jesus did when he saved a people out of the land of Egypt. I know. Yeah, you could almost spend an hour just talking about that yeah. alone. <laughs> There's so much stuff in this. You know, that he shows that Jesus was the agent of the Exodus. So, but that's nothing new. You know, that we've seen that already in First Corinthians 10, especially. Um, you know, that rock was Christ. You know, uh, think about those things. Hebrews 11 talks about this as well. So Jesus, the the very master that they are denying by their perversion of God's grace is the very one who delivered the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, right? So now then we think about the freedom that the gospel gives us, and now they're promoting a slavery of the of the of sin, trying to bring that back on people. And Jesus is the one who brought them out of slavery, both figuratively and literally, in the case of the Exodus, that you know, with that. So he gets to that right right at the get-go there. Um, and, and Jude 6, he talks about um, then the angels. You know, you mentioned that um, Peter brings that up. And, and what is said and not said is kind of a, a key thing in some of this here as well. But kind of the, the gist of what he's getting at is they didn't fil- fulfill the office that was assigned to them. Kind of they, they got too big for their britches. You know, they had this desertion and defection. And, but Jesus has kept them for judgment, and there's been a lot written on that. What does this actually mean? But I think for our purposes, we can think about, you know, the binding of Satan in Matthew 12. We think about like um, uh, St. Michael and All Angels Day to that stuff. And then Revelation 20, verse 2. Uh, some have tried to draw a connection with the book of First Enoch, which we'll come to in a little bit, where there's a definite connection. But um, but I think that we can see that he's kind of referring to the fall of the angels, you know, these these ones who have fallen out of God's favor um, by their own doing. And then he gets to then in Jude 7, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. uh, And there's a warning to be learned from this, which Sodom and Gomorrah, then how he ends, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, but a sexual sin, homosexuality, you know, as Genesis 19.5 talks about those, those things, those unnatural things. And so that there's this kind of return. And I think that it's almost kind of like he bookends it with Jesus as the agent and then this sexual sin, because just kind of like he's has laid out in verse four about what the perversion of the grace of God does and the denial of Christ, he kind of he does that. And this this threefold this triad thing is is he does this in numerous places throughout as well. But he just kind of lays it out there, you know, just kind of sh- shows some examples in there and um, the uh, the warning too to them in verse seven. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire to serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
So it doesn't just list these as a way of saying, gee, you know, you guys are bad. Look at all these bad things that happened. Isn't that bad? No, he's saying, listen, guys, look, see this as an example. You know, Paul does this in First Corinthians as, as well, kind of that you there are times in the Old Testament or even the New Testament as well, too. But we look in the scriptures about seeing what not to do. And there's a warning in those things. Hey, this is what happens when you do this stuff, guys. This is what happens when you go down this path. Don't fall prey to that. Watch out. Listen. Pay attention. And, and so does, I mean, does verse eight then, and I know at least in the ESV, verse eight begins a new paragraph, but perhaps it, it would be better to include it more with verses five through seven as, as now Jude, he's, he's given these three examples from the Old Testament. And then in verse eight, he's going to kind of bring it home to these people to him. He's writing about what the false teachers are doing. I think so. Um, I mean, the, the Greek text, like the Nestle Elan has it as a new paragraph as well, but I mean, those are all additions, you know, a lot of those things like that, that we know of, but, um, but I, I think there is a connection as well. Um, cause he kind of t- ties in this, this things about defiling the flesh, um, and the things of God and, and really brings that kind of to a, to a head there. So what, what does he say then in verse eight that relates to that? I would say that, um, he talks about where he says, In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So here are these clandestine preachers who are in their midst. They're blaspheming the things of God by their teaching and their actions that they're promoting. Um, You know, that relying on their dreams, that's that's typical language of even like I mentioned Jeremiah a minute ago. You know, people that said, I've dreamed, I've dreamed, right, that they're they're seeking they're promoting and preaching and teaching what comes from themselves as opposed to what has been handed down, you know, that faith delivered to them once for all. And uh, they are, you know, this defying of the flesh, it's called kind of wrapped up in there as well. Um, that slandering the glorious ones, um, Dr. Giese in his commentary even nuances that as glorious angels. So then they're even mocking the angels. They're slandering them by this as well, as opposed to you have those angels that were rebelled against God and turned away from the things of God. And so then even by the content or the conduct of, of these false teachers, they're even slandering and blaspheming the angels who are faithful mm-hmm. and to God and his service. Yeah, Jude has has a lot to say here about these false teachers. We're going to pick up more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. have Pastor Andy Wright talking about Jude today. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, May 7th. We're studying Jude, verses 1 to 16. We've got Pastor Andy Wright with us. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa. 
Pastor Wright, prior to the break, we looked at the first eight verses of Jude. He's laid out his purpose, why he's writing. These clandestine preachers are creeping in among these congregations, trying to pervert God's grace in their sensuality. And he's brought up several Old Testament examples, three, about God's judgment in the past and applied that to the situation to which he's writing. He continues in verse nine with another Old Testament example that is going to have some things that are going to sound familiar to us, but then some other things that maybe fill in some details that we don't get in the Old Testament. He, he In verses 9 and 10, he talks about the archangel Michael contending with the devil about the body of Moses. So we know some things from the Old Testament about Moses' death. We hear some things about the archangel Michael. There's some things in here that aren't necessarily in the Old Testament. What What is Jude doing here in verses 9 and 10? Jude is confusing us, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, yeah, they're, they're, it's one of those texts that it's hard. And there's a, some of these things we just have to kind of scratch our head and just let let them stand as they stand. But I think we can. That doesn't mean we throw up our hands and don't actually, you know, just say, well, whatever. There is a biblical backdrop that he's talking about with this. Deuteronomy 34, we think of the, the death of Moses, you know, um, and in 34, 6, we talk about the burial of Moses, and we have that where only God knows he, where he was buried. And then in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, um, there's this kind of this really interesting image that we have of Joshua the high priest and Satan arguing. And um, he seems to combine kind of some of these elements together. And there's also kind of at play here um, something called the Assumption of Moses, uh, there's these pseudepigraphal work, which means kind of like a, a false author, false writing. There, it's a little different than like the Apocrypha, but there's like Old Testament pseudepigrapha, this New Testament pseudepigrapha. And um, the assumption of Moses, um, it's, it varies on the dating of it, but and only fragments exist today. It talks about the, the sin of Satan, um, and it talks about kind of this arguing over the body of Moses and that as well. But the focus is, is on the Christ as the victor. So, and it seems to be well-known, it would have probably been well-known to the recipients, um, understanding if this is Palestine at this time. So, um, there's kind of that as well, but that biblical backdrop of Deuteronomy 34 and, and Zechariah 3, they don't specifically talk about, you know, the, the body of Moses there being disputed over, but we kind of have those biblical images come to mind as well. So, but there's a, just kind of a lot squeezed into that little image, but Michael, I mean, we're familiar with Michael the archangel, he, he pops up in different places in the scriptures. So that's not un- uncommon for us, but mm. yeah. So, so, I mean, and, and to try to, as, as you said, this is kind of confusing. I, I'm reminded of, of the way Peter says at the end of his second epistle, that some of the things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. Here's something that Jude wrote. That's kind of hard to understand, but it, but if I think we can kind of at least get a grasp for what he's doing here. I think earlier you said that the, these false teachers that are creeping in, they're too big for their britches. And it, it sounds like Michael, he brings up Michael as an example of a holy angel who doesn't get too big for his britches. Is that, is that kind of the, what Jude is doing here? I think so. I, I think in, in that way, we kind of kind of see, you know, Michael serves as kind of a, a type of, of faithfulness to God. And, and dare we say, like a servant of God, almost like Jude mm, even, yeah. you know, who's contending and being faithful and firm to what has been given to him over and above this want this want to a higher office that has not been given. 
um, this want for this, uh, you know, disobedience to God, this abusing what God has done, this kind of disputing and arguing against God's word. And, and so there, I think that's at, at play in there as well. Um, but uh, so Michael, you know, this, and what does he do with the ESV? What does he say in verse nine, Michael contending, right? With the devil. And what are we called to do? Contend for the faith. And I, I don't know. It's just kind of some, some things that are kind of very vivid that kind of illustrate kind of the spiritual things that are going on as well, you know, in the midst of these people. Mm. Well, and, and then the way that Michael contends with the devil, I think, corresponds to the way we would contend for the faith. You know, Michael doesn't step outside of his office, but rather instead sticks with the Lord's word. You know, what does he say to the devil? The Lord rebuke you. So how do we as Christians contend for the faith by staying in our office as Christians and simply speaking the word of God that has been handed it down to us? Absolutely. Yeah. And we think about, you know, from a standpoint of a pastor, you know, that's just, I'm, I'm a pastor and you're a pastor. And when we speak, even those hard words at times, you know, thus says the Lord, but it's we're we're handing over, and because we're servants of Christ, and Christians, whoever we are, you know what, whatever the vocation that God has called us to, be it a father, a, you know, a, a mother, whatever, that this is we, faithfulness to God, and the contending for the faith is a faithfulness to the Word of God, and digging in our heels, and 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 resting solely on Christ and His Word for us, and. That's a, this is what Michael does here too. The Lord rebuke you. He doesn't say, look at me, I'm Michael the archangel. Ha ha ha. No, the Lord rebuke you. Hmm. Now in, in verse 10, then Jude reminds us of how these false teachers are acting it, in contrast to Michael. Is that the, that's the move that he's making from nine to 10? I think so. I, I think there is, it kind of il- further illustrates that point. So you have this example too of Michael of steadfastness and faithfulness and now then what does he say about these these people? I just, they bless, blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they destroy by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, right? He compares them to wild animals. Mm-hmm. Philippians 3, 18 to 19 has a similar um, comparison here and shows what's the end, destruction, mm-hmm. right? So they're just doing instinctively what is, according to, our sinful nature, just acting like just wild animals and showing no restraint or, or thinking about even in the specific sexual immorality here too, the, the acting in a wild animal in that sense and promoting that as well, as opposed to being um, a new creation in Christ and what God has called us to live in that new life that he, he teaches us. Again, there's another connection to Second Peter chapter 2, particularly this matter of irrational beasts and, and using and animals as an example that was peter's move in in second peter when he was talking about the false teachers there now in verses 11 i guess it's just in verse 11 seems you get another one of these you you mentioned the triads these groups of three that jude really likes we get another one of those in verse 11 he again talking about these false teachers and he compares them again to three old testament examples I think the names are going to be familiar, but perhaps the exact accounts may be a little more sketchy for some of these. He mentions Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Let's let's dig in a little bit to the Old Testament that Jude brings up. Sure. So so Cain is kind of the seen oftentimes as the arch archetype mentor of sin, or 
filled with jealousy to the point of murdering his own brother, right? With Genesis 4, with the Cain killing Abel, a brother killing a brother in the scriptures. And 1 John 3, 12 connects Cain as being from the devil and hates what is righteous. Hebrews 11, 4, Cain as the opposite of Abel, who had faith in God's promise. So, you know, most of uh, the listeners, you know, that anytime we hear Cain in the Bible, the first thing that probably pops to our head is murder, hmm. you know, uh, jealousy, all of those things. So I think that's a pretty, um, you know, common thing. And, uh, and and these people, too, would be familiar with a lot of these Old Testament things. They're, they're, when he re- makes some of these references, it's, it's going to pop into their, their minds a lot of this stuff as well. Um, and Scripture does that often. Um, Balaam. I think of Numbers 22 to 24, which um, he was a, a diviner and interesting. Like, remember, they wanted him to curse God's people and he didn't want to take payment. And there's different things. But um, but later than we hear in Deuteronomy 23 and Nehemiah 13, that no Ammonite or Moabite can enter the Lord's assembly because they hired Balaam. Um, Numbers 31 talks about Midianite and Moabite women were sexually enticed Israelite men with the advice of Balaam and led them to reject the Lord. So there's a really, I think, a, a pertinent connection with what Jude is talking about as well, that they're enticing these people into sexual immorality and leading to the rejection of the Lord. Um, and that was part of the worship of the Baal of Peor, um, which resulted in 24,000 Israelites dying. Uh, Revelation 2.14 also kind of talks about some of these things as well with the stumbling block. And then there are even extra biblical accounts, like you think about Josephus, Philo, the Talmud, all Jewish, you know, sources. They do not have good things to say about Balaam. We'll just say that. So, you know, he really kind of serves as another, you know, way of an ancient teacher. And thirdly, we have this example of Korah. And Korah makes us think of the Korah's rebellion in number 16. And what's kind of fascinating here that Jude brings him up as well, that God inspired him to write this, is the rebellion and sedition against God. So what was some of the, they were mad at the, at the divinely called and appointed leaders that God had placed in service. You know, and uh, so these guys who are clandestine preachers who are mm-hmm. trying to, you know, do their own thing and preach a false gospel you know, here's an example in the rebellion of Korah of how well that ended. And, you know, one of the, as, as Lutherans, when we talk about like the, our, our pastors and we have article 14 of the Augsburg confession that talks about no one should publicly preach, teach, or administer the sacraments without being rightly called. The office of the ministry exists for many different reasons. One, it's a divinely instituted office, but also there's certainty in that too, to know that this is who God has placed in our midst um, who we hold accountable to be faithful to God's word and preaching, but who God has appointed to preach the word and administer the sacraments for us. And Korah's rebellion is kind of uh, the opposite of that or the antithesis of that, even as these guys who are the false teachers in the the area that Jude is writing to are kind of trying to do that same thing. They're, we would almost in a sense say that they're kind of trying to be make themselves into these things without being rightly called, you know, mm-hmm. to use our uh, terminology with the Augsburg Confession. Hmm. You know, what, what strikes me about these three examples, and again, it reminds me of the way Peter talks as well in his second epistle, is that you have both a matter of 
what's being taught and how they're teaching it. For example, the way you were talking about their Korah's rebellion and sort of, you know, going around what God teaches about the certainty that he wants us to have through those whom he appoints as his servants. So there's a, a theological aspect of this, but there's also a, an aspect of the, the the life of the teacher as well. I mean, Cain and Balaam both stand as examples of those whose lives were clearly not aligned with God's word. And I mean, Peter does the same thing. And I, it's here in Jude as well, how, I mean, you see both of those things go hand in hand, false teaching leads to false living and false living often is accompanied by false teaching. I mean, I think, I think these old Testament examples back that up. I think so too. And it's the same today as well. I mean, we hold, uh, you know, the, the pastoral office, for instance, you know, think about First Timothy 3 or other passages. There's this, this standard, you know, that they're held to, um, not because a pastor is saved by works or anything like that, but that's that office, you know, requires those things. And there's a scandal that goes along with it. But, but um, you know, he'll bring up about the, a, a tree and fruit in a, in a few minutes here with one of the verses coming after this. But we think about that a false teacher is known by his life and works too. You know, Jesus tells us that you'll know him by their fruits. You know, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. You'll know them by their fruits. What's their fruits? Their teaching and their life, both both of those things. Jesus himself teaches us that, just as you know the Old Testament does and, and here Jude as well. So so yeah, it's um yep, the, there's that connection between, you know, the, the teaching and the life. And it goes for Christians too. I mean yeah when we believe God's word and we trust in it and it produces a, a new life and a fruit in our lives as well. And, and that entering back into that old life of slavery of sin and bondage to, to those things it uh, it affects, it affects a lot. In verses 12 and 13, Jude also shows that, I mean, he shows himself to be a very capable preacher here. He's bringing out old Testament examples and now he's going to use examples, pictures from just the world around his hearer. So take us into verses 12 and 13 and the images that Jude uses to talk about these false teachers. Sure. I'll just going to read it out loud again, because I, like we, we know, the, uh, especially the letters too, but scripture is meant to be heard. And, you know, hearing you read it, I just, it's so sounded so vivid. It which is here again for us. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Just hearing that, that, that image, you know, just those image, you can you picture those things and just that, that unholy litany, so to speak. So hidden reeds in the love uh, feast, this goes back to this clandestine nature of them. And we get this image of, you know, a hidden reef. If you're on a ship, right, you know, um, we think this wasn't a reef, but right, the Titanic sank. They hit a, mm. an iceberg. And what's the big thing about an iceberg is that there's a lot of it under the water. Well, hidden reefs, there's a lot of reefs that when you uh, boat may think that they're safe going across them, but then they all of a sudden they scratch their boat along the reefs, tears it open, and the boat sinks. And so he's telling them, look, guys, here in these love feasts that you're having, which were communal meals that would often culminate in the Lord's Supper. And, uh, you know, First uh, Corinthians talks a lot about this. And it's something that that I, to be honest, haven't done a whole lot of research on the whole ins and outs. But you can do a, a lot of, um, you know, reading on those things. But so but there, he's making the point that here they are at their love feast, these love feasts that they are having. 
and that they would be uh, that would culminate in the Lord's Supper. And here they are eating in their midst and communing in their midst without fear, without regard for the fear of God, of sinning against the Lord. And we have that charge in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, about discerning um, the body and blood of Christ because there's our, we can eat and drink to our own judgment. So, but they're just, there's this flippancy, a hard heart, heartedness, you know, that they have in it. But, but less that it's just kind of an, an us and them type of thing. Jude is also telling them, look, guys, look, they're in your midst. They're hidden reeves. Don't sink. You know, don't sink to the ship, which the church is oftentimes seen as a ship, right? These guys are going to bring you down. Don't do it. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. And then he brings out self-serving shepherds. I think, you know, that's a common image that we, we hear as well. You know, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds. So you think about a waterless cloud, you know, we, um, I live in Iowa and we have uh, farming all around us. And, you know, you so much depend on the right amount of rain. So, but when you need rain, you see the clouds come up and there's a hope that it, that produces of, oh, the Lord is going to give us rain. Well, a waterless cloud gives false hope. It misleads. Mm-hmm. You see those things and, you, and, you're, and you're just teased and toiled with and, and it's held over you. Um, fruitless trees at har- harvest time, a tree grows up. And it doesn't bear any fruit. An unbeliever is a fruitless tree to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew's gospel teaches us that. Luke's gospel teaches us that. Foaming waves and wandering or shooting stars. Um, that wandering stars could also be um, those, um, yeah, wide waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars. This kind of, we see this chaos in nature too. So we see these, these things in their midst and also the chaos that it's created over and above God's order and his care of his church. But very vivid, just wonderful language there to kind of drive home this point. Listen, this is the seriousness of this. Yeah, I mean, he's really, really preaching quite well here, bringing up these images, putting them in our minds to to warn us about these false teachers. So we've got verses 14 to 16 left. We've got just under nine minutes, Pastor Wright, just to give you the the kind of where we're, where we're, what we've got left here. And in verses 14 through 16, uh, he brings up a man named Enoch. Now, we know him from the Old Testament, but you mentioned this earlier. There's a work called First Enoch that it looks like Jude is quoting from here. You, you mentioned earlier he probably wasn't referring to it or he wasn't agreeing with it earlier. Here he does seem pretty clearly to, to quote from it. So uh, there's a couple of things that we want to try to do with these last few minutes here. Uh, who is Enoch and what do we know about him scripturally? What's this first Enoch? How does Jude use it? Those kinds of things. Help us into that. Enoch is He's one of those guys in the Bible that you're like, man, that sounds really cool. I, I want to read more about him. And then you don't get any more about right. him. <laughs> it's always frustrating. It's like, oh, really? Come on. Really? <laughs> but, you know, uh, but, he, you know, Enoch walked with God and he was no more. Right. There we go. <laughs> and so but he's mentioned in, in Genesis chapter five. Um, Hebrews 11 does mention him, too. And and then so, you know, there are two people that specifically in the Bible we we hear about kind of not dying and just kind of giving us the impression that they go directly to heaven, Enoch and Elijah, you know, with the chariot of fire. So Enoch, you know, the after then kind of the this account, and he's often seen as being, you know, um, kind of a 
such a, an interesting figure that even not there are a lot of non-canonical books that is non-scriptural books that talk about him and a lot of the popular literature of the people. And when we think about like the Old Testament and the New Testament, I mentioned a, a while ago about those pseudepigraphal works that some of those works were you know popular that they would go around. And, and nowadays it's, it's not the best analogy, but I just I don't know how else to describe it. Of, you know, we have like these certain genres of Christian fiction that want to try to use certain things about, you know, maybe use characters from the Bible, but then they just go way off on some outlandish thing and people, and it catches on and they like it because it's, you know, it's intriguing or those kind of things. That's that's a terrible analogy, but I just don't know of a better one. So if you have a better one, I'm more power to you. I'm open to that. But these, so First Enoch then is a pseudepigraphal work that, and the, the range is from the third to first centuries AD for its possible writing. And first Enoch alone has 105 chapters and it's divided into five books. And it's from that first book, which is called the book of watchers chapters one to 36. Um, and we don't know who wrote this, but it's just called Enoch, which is one of the reasons why it's pseudepigraphal. And Jude quotes from this kind of first Enoch one nine is what he he, he mentions and he kind of adapts it. And this is where we get then where this, this business about, you know, um, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Um, holy ones in first Enoch are a rank of angels. So there's the hymn, uh, you know, ye watchers and ye holy ones. Mm -hmm. Some of that, that language comes from first Enoch. Some of those things like watchers are, you know, and there's different archangels that they mentioned like Raphael, in the Archdiocese of Dubuque in Iowa, there's the, the Cathedral of St. Raphael. Well, like he's mentioned in First Enoch, Raphael is. Not the Ninja Turtle, you know, but uh, an angel in a pseudepigraphal work. And uh, so, you know, that he, to execute this judgment. So he, he uses this in, in a way to show then this Christological focus, though. So how are then the, the question that kind of puzzles us then? Because this book was, it was well-received at times, but then it was not well-received. And it's never once been considered scriptural in a sense. Even to some extent, like we think about the Apocrypha, it's viewed differently than even that. Um, but but how are then we to view First Enoch if he quotes this here? And I think the best way for our purposes to understand it, and it's probably oversimplification, but it works for a summary, is that this part is authoritative what he quotes here, because Jude was inspired and is authoritative. Does that mean the rest of First Enoch is inspired and authoritative? No, but why? But this part is because that's what he quotes. So he kind of draws this Christological focus and the law against the enemies of Christ. Christ is the victor and the judgment that comes upon them. So hmm. that's a. But there's a lot there with with First Enoch. It's um. It's quite a. It, it, it's one of those things too to try to read it too. You kind of have to keep all these things straight. And it's uh, I tried reading it one time. I taught a Bible study in Jude a few years ago, and I thought, oh, let's just print off some of this for First Enoch for people to read. That was not a good idea because <laughs> it was trying to piece that all together. That you more there's more. It's it's not as helpful as one would think. That we'll put it that way. Yeah, I, I pulled it up while you were talking, and us just yeah. to see. I was like, I don't know about this. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to you know, to the to the point of of how what does this mean about 
first Enoch that Jude brings it in. I think the way that you, while simple, I think it's helpful that, that that means that Jude recognized in at least these words, truth. And he recognized truth there because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things. And, and it's not exactly the same thing, but Paul in some places will, I think it's, it's in Titus where he, he quotes, he says, one of your own prophets says this, and he quotes from that. Well, does that mean that every, you know, pagan prophet or every Cretan prophet is, is somehow inspired? Well, no, but Paul recognized that he could draw from the truth of what was being spoken there to preach and to write God's word or in, I think it's in Acts 17 where he's preaching in Athens and, and he quotes from one of the Greek prophets as well. You know, that's not to say that sure. somehow everything that every Greek prophet wrote was the word of God, but Paul was recognizing the truth and was using it in service of the word of God that he was preaching and then, and then writing. And I think we can say something similar about Jude in the way that he uses first Enoch here. Again, it's maybe not exactly the same thing because of the nature of what Enoch is, but we don't, I guess all of that is to say we shouldn't be afraid to recognize, yeah, he's probably drawing from it and he's drawing something that's true for his purposes, but then we don't need to sort of jump off the deep end and say like all of first Enoch is inspired or something like that. So I, again, I, I commend your, your simple explanation of it. We got just about a minute and a half here, pastor, Wright. We've talked about a variety of topics, uh, get us centered again in what Jude is doing, how he's, he's helping us to contend for this faith that has been delivered to us. I think one of the things kind of for our, our points of closing with verse 16 here is kind of a, a point of contrast. And he says about these, so after he's, you know, referred to um, first Enoch here, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And going back to what was verse one of uh, our study today, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I think that's quite a stark contrast of what God calls us to be, but also, you know, who he has made us to be. He's made us to be his people, and he's the one who keeps us for Jesus Christ, even above um, the grumblers, the malcontents, those things like that. So we hear those warnings, we take heed lest we fall, but also we know that um, the prayer of Jude is answered. Mercy, peace, and love are multiplied to us because we have Christ. We have his benefits. That's ours in our baptism. That's the faith that's been handed down to us once delivered to the saints. And that's the faith that we contend for. Pastor Andy Wright is the pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa, helping us today with Jude verses 1 to 16. Pastor Wright, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. A lot of fun. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jude, which we will finish on Monday, or the book of Jeremiah, we're going to start a new series on Jeremiah beginning next Tuesday. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you and help you sharpen your faith in Christ. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.